Good morning, church. Good morning, those of you on Zoom and uh, watching this later online. For those who may not yet know me, my, I am Bart Barton, one of the deacons, um, still. And uh, as Pastor Ron said, I occasionally fill in for him when he is uh, away. But as he explained, uh, he wants me to fill in for him today while he is here. So I'm going to be preaching to my pastor. Absolutely no pressure. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy and give me strength and guidance. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This sermon was a challenge for me. God gave me two somewhat obscure uh, and little-known verses and said, give a sermon on these verses. Right. So here goes. Some time ago, Elaine and I, in our morning devotionals, um, read a section of Mark 14. And verses 51 and 52 jumped out at me. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Mark 14, 51, 52. Now, although I've read Mark's gospel several times, um, I'm much more familiar with uh, Matthew's and Luke's gospel and way more familiar with John's gospel. But these two verses in Mark 14 apparently never registered with me before. So after our devotions, I went to Google and discovered a whole lot of theologians were intrigued by these verses. So the title of my sermon today is, Have We Too Fled Naked from Jesus? Now theories and interpretations on these two verses are all over the map. Many theologians declared that these two verses have no significance, that they were inconsequential and without meaning. The thrust of their argument was that if you remove these two verses from Mark's gospel, it would still be a coherent account. Remove these two verses? Let's look at what the Bible says about the Word of God. In the Gospel of John, verses 1, or, uh, 1, and 1 and 2, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the term that's translated here as word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, which basically means the expression of a thought. Logos can be thought of as the total message of God to man. And Jesus embodied that message. That's why he is sometimes referred to as logos or word of God. And in Paul's second epistle to Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then there's Matthew 5:18. Jesus himself said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So what can we take from these verses? 
John equates Jesus and the word as one. Jesus himself says, not one jot or tittle shall be changed. Hmm, what is a jot and what is a tittle? Always wondered, again, Google knows, a jot is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the smallest. It's shown on the left up there. A tittle is even smaller than a jot. A tittle is just a little letter extension, a pen stroke that can differentiate one Hebrew letter from another. It's sort of like uh, it says up there, the little line that changes a, an O to a Q in our alphabet. And Paul tells us that the word of is God breathed or given to the writers of the Bible by God. So we find this story in Mark's gospel right after the account of Jesus' arrest. It may be the least understood narrative in the entire New Testament. Neither Matthew nor Luke mention this in their gospels, but this two verse story is in the Bible. So we have to assume that God had Mark include it for a reason. Who was this young man? And more importantly, why did Mark include this information about him? Now, the consensus is that Mark was not one of uh, um, the, obviously not one of the 12 apostles. He was a follower, perhaps a follower of Peter. So he certainly was a disciple. But what is a disciple? In the ancient world, a disciple was a, a follower or an adherent of a teacher. So at least indirectly, Mark was a follower of Jesus. So let us set the stage leading up to Mark 14, 51 and 52. Jesus had completed the Passover meal and he and his disciples had gone to the Mount of Olives. Mark tells us in 14, 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. I always stumbled over that. I've even got it spelled out here phonetically and I still stumbled over it. So they all went to a place called Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. And Mark writes in 1448 and 50, Jesus said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Matthew, Andrew, Thomas, Peter, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, and all the rest of them fled. All the apostles and all the disciples, they all fled. They feared for their lives. They didn't want to be associated with Jesus. Then Mark writes those two verses in 14, 51, 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Why does Mark include that? Or better yet, why does God have Mark include those two verses? And who is that naked young man? The consensus is 
that that young man was Mark himself. Note the wording, the young man was following Jesus. This is what disciples did, they, they followed Jesus. And all the disciples fled. The young man fled, but he was seized. Was he slow of foot that he was seized? Were any of the other fleeing disciples seized? We're not told. Perhaps he was in the back of the pack when seized. Probably no one was looking back because they were running for their lives. And that could explain why uh, Matthew and Luke did not see this, did not record it in their gospels. But when seized, he fled naked, leaving his linen garment behind. We can sort of imagine the Roman guards reaching out to grab him and, and just catching a hold of his clothing, which he then sheds and flees into the night. At first blush, this is not a very heroic picture. I mean, I, I, it's certainly not something that I would want to be proud of and to tell the world. Not only did all the other disciples run for their lives, but so did Mark. So what are we to take away from these verses? Jesus told his disciples that they would desert him, and they did. Mark adds that the young man fled naked. In the ancient world, nakedness was a cause for shame. Remember Adam and Eve? Genesis 2.25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But after they ate the forbidden fruit, Genesis 3, 6 through 10 tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now he knew exactly where he was, but he wanted to see what Adam would say. So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So Mark is telling us that in addition to fleeing from Jesus, he and the disciples were ashamed. They chose shame over fidelity to Jesus, utter failure. But who among us has not failed in our discipleship as we follow Jesus? In one way or another, in some fashion or another, we have all fallen in sin, in faithfulness, in courage, in commitment. At one time or another, we have all fled from Jesus in shame. And we continue to stumble in discipleship. Is there any hope for us? Bear with me a little longer as we look at a few more details. Remember the linen garment or the linen cloth? The Greek word that Mark used to describe the linen cloth appears again in 1546. The only time that this specific word is used is in those two verses. Mark 1542 to 46 reads, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the, 
day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate. And he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, Joseph, bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Now, as with a lot of Bible teaching, symbolism is used to illustrate a point. God sure has a way with words. First, in a degrading and disgraceful act of fleeing, the disciple is stripped of the linen cloth that he wore. Following an equally degrading crucifixion, a linen cloth becomes Jesus' burial shroud. Symbolically, the shame of the naked young man is buried in death with Jesus. Now, don't get ahead of me. I know what you're thinking. Now, when Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, arrive the next morning, and we read the announcement of Jesus' resurrection, 16, 1 through 8, there is another coincidence. Mark uses the same term young man to describe the angelic reporter clad in white, 16.5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The young man in March 16 wears no linen cloth. He is wearing white. Another coincidence? The only other time Mark uses the word here translated as white is in Mark 9, 2 and 3, Jesus' transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone, when they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Let's try to piece this together. The linen cloth left behind by the fleeing naked young man represents his shame for fleeing from Jesus. We then see Jesus' body being wrapped in a linen cloth by Joseph of Arimathea as a burial garment. At the empty tomb, Jesus' resurrection is announced by a young man wearing a long white robe with white being the same word used to describe Jesus' transfiguration. This symbolic portrayal of the exchange of garments bears an implicit promise for those disciples who have failed in discipleship. God offers hope. Yes, there is hope for all of us who follow Jesus, albeit stumbling and, and falling, clumsy and re resistant, the shame of our failures is exchanged for the brilliance of Jesus' glory. And we have hope indeed because of what our Lord did for us. Amazing grace. The young man fled naked in shame. After his arrest, all disciples fled, including John, the disciple Jesus loved. Later that night, Peter denied Jesus three times. As disciples, have we all fled naked at times? Each time we fall into sin, and for me that's a daily occurrence, each time we fall into sin, 
Are we not fleeing from Jesus, who was without sin? But the eternal hope, the eternal promise, is Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus bore all our sins when he was nailed to that cross. All my sins, all your sins, all your sins, large and small, past, present, and future. He endured separation from God as he took on our sins because God is holy and cannot accept sin. We can't imagine, we can't begin to imagine how he must have suffered. Yet he did it willingly because he loves each one of us. You, me, he loves everyone that much. That is the good news of the Gospels. We who are sinners, repeat offenders in fact, have hope because Jesus forgives our sin. When we confess our sins to him and ask him to be our savior, we are assured of our eternal life in heaven. There is no other way to heaven. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But in order to come to the Father, we must confess our sins to Jesus and ask him to be our Savior. Only then are we assured of our eternal life in heaven. But if you do not yet know the Lord Jesus, have not confessed your sins to him, have not asked him to be your personal Savior, please call or text me at 585-953-3214. I'd love to tell you about my Jesus and how he saved me and changed my life 14 years ago. Thank you and God bless. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we are just so grateful for, for you and your son who you sent to die on that cross for us so that our sins would be forgiven. So that when you look at us, you see Jesus and you see us as holy and without sin because you cannot tolerate sin. We cannot come before you as sinners. We can only come before you as forgiven by Jesus. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. In your holy and precious name, amen.